Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this is going to be on protocol optimization. I was asked to give this talk at the recent UCSF meeting in Nevis. It was a wonderful meeting at a wonderful location. And they asked me to talk about protocol optimization and not to worry about radiation therapy, but how do we do protocols? And I guess we always speak about protocols, and we've addressed it in some other talks, but let me get started in this new year with a talk on protocols. So I think at the end of the day, one of the most important things to think about protocols is the fact that radiology, we make errors. There are a lot of reasons we make errors. One of the reasons is because the protocols aren't correct. Now, if you believe this article, Fool Me Twice, we talk about error rates on a normal study of 3 to 4%, but if pathology is present, an error range in the 30% numbers which are indeed incredible. And when you think about it, almost half the error is, well, let's say 42% were under-reading. That means something is there, but you don't see it. A lot of times, that's because the protocol is just not good. And this issue with false negatives is not uncommon. It's not a new issue. Here was an article from a number of years ago by McReady talking about missing things. And they look at what we miss. Unsuspected bowel or pancreas pathology, PEs, vascular pathology, bone lesions, or mental disease, incidental abnormalities. This is 2017. Nothing has changed. And then Marty McCary from Hopkins talks about how medical error is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. And if you look at those numbers, it's growing, and it probably is going to be higher than cancer and heart disease as we decrease the deaths from those diseases we don't really know how extensive medical error is. This was an estimation, but in the article they talk about how probably this was a substantial underestimation. And Marty does a good job making the point that errors are always going to be there. We're not perfect, but the question is how do we make errors less frequently by taking and following principles that take into account human limitations. So we need to figure out how we optimize things to minimize errors. A good quote by John Ivey, who's the lead designer for Apple, our goal is to try to bring a calm and simplicity to what are incredibly complex problems so that you're not aware of the solution. That's what we're trying to do. Okay, how do you design a protocol then? Contrast, oral, intravenous, rectal, in the bladder. Got to make those decisions. What do you need for each patient? When we scan the patient, what phases are necessary? Do we need non-contrast? Is it single phase, dual phase, three phase, four phase? What do we need? We need enough phases to get the answer, but not additional phases. What's our contrast volume and injection rate? What's the timing? Per your scanner, what's the KVP, the MAS, the slice thickness? What do you need to do per your scanner, per this specific patient problem? And how do you do this 24-7, 365 correctly? Now, if you haven't checked your protocols in the last 10 years, today's maybe a good day or a good month to start. Think of 2017, January, is when you check your protocols. If you want some suggestions, there are many places to go. CTSS is a good example. Lots of protocols. We constantly will update them. And here's just an example of a sample protocol, pancreas. How do you do it? What phases are necessary? What are not? Where do you scan from? What are the technical parameters? What are the contrast injections and volumes and timing? And how do we post-process the data? 
All the things need to be defined. This way, everybody does it the same way every time. The only way protocols work is if they're followed. And it's not that simple because even something like hematuria, which is a very common question, it's not just what phase you do, but it also depends on whether patients have microscopic hematuria, macroscopic hematuria. Is a patient under 30 or over 50? How we do things depends on how the patient is at risk for having a tumor. Young patient, microscopic hematuria, you do the minimal because the risk of a tumor is low. Macroscopic hematuria over 50, or really at any age, is a high risk. And so you then do multiple phases to pick up even small tumors. When we talk about oral contrast, we talk about the contrast volumes and the type. Whether it's water or positive contrast, whether it's a neutral agent like volumen. We know that with positive contrast, oral omnipaque is what you want to do because it's easy to administer. People drink it quickly and patients do like it. In terms of transit time, it's the fastest and patients like it four to one over any other agent. We like positive contrast when we're looking for fistulas or perforations. Pneumoperitoneum, you can see the contrast extravasation. You can see that it's easy to see the fistula from a perforated duodenal ulcer with positive contrast. Without positive contrast, you would not see it, or you may not see it, perhaps. Maybe you would see some air bubbles there that were abnormal. The thing about it is positive contrast in the peritoneal cavity is not an issue when you use omnipaque. Omnipaque is inert in the peritoneal cavity. Water is being used more frequently these days. We use water to distend the stomach. Even in the ER setting when the ER docs say, no, 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 don't give anything, we give water. And we say, aha, this is to help patients prevent nephrotoxicity. Everyone likes that answer. Distend the stomach, you're not going to miss this infiltrating gastric cancer. You're not going to have cases where perhaps the stomach's abnormal, perhaps is normal, perhaps is indeterminate, where reports make absolutely no sense you're going to eliminate those reports. We talk about the visualization. We talk about how sometimes on axial imaging things are not that visible. Look at the patient's right colon and this patient with vague symptoms, possible GI bleeding. Well, you look and it's very subtle the findings of increased enhancement of the right colon, but boy, when you look at it in MIP imaging and volume rendering, look at that angiodysplasia of the patient's right colon. It's easy to see but again, it's the protocol, fast injection, but also the display, volume rendering and MIP. In the volume, things are easier to see. We talk about phases. You need to decide what phases you need for problems. This is all in your protocol. So for GI bleeding, we do arterial and venous phase imaging. Some people suggest non-contrast and arterial. We like arterial and venous because in this case, in what appears to be a subtle finding, when you go from arterial to venous, the finding becomes very obvious. Sometimes bleeds are best seen in the venous phase. Sometimes they're not seen arterial at all, or when they are seen, they're barely seen. You can see, compare the left to the right. Look at the coronal views, arterial versus venous phase imaging. Look at the act of bleed. Now, the question is, is there a problem without doing non-contrast? No. Whenever I've seen a bleed, it always changes from arterial to venous. If something was simply matter in the colon, it would be identical from arterial to venous. So it's not going to be a problem. Now, when you speak about IV contrast, 
We know that IV contrast has some risks, but I think the risks have been overstated. To me, the biggest worry is contrast extravasation, not nephrotoxicity. We've published a lot on this. We have an app on the App Store you can get, which answers a lot of questions, and that can be helpful. We talk about the importance of looking at, yes, a large renal mass, but it's the vascularity which, which shows us that this is a clear cell, not a papillary. It's the vascularity that allows us to treat with certain chemotherapy agents because of the neovascularity of the tumor. The display in 3D mapping nicely shows you the extent of tumor and the presence or absence of arterial and venous involvement, as in this case. You can see the lobulations, the neovascularity, and the enhancement and we create this vascular map of the patient's tumor. Now, this case also leads me to the discussion about how we look at images. And you know we're big proponents of post-processing. Our feeling is you need to do everything in many cases. Axials are never enough. We talk about information when we're doing a vascular study, but remember, most of the studies we do are vascular studies because once you inject fast, everybody has a CTA, whether you are doing a CTA or not. We talk about how visualization is best seen, information is best seen in a volume. Things can be hidden. Things cannot be recognized, as in this case where the arrow I'm showing you points to I don't know what. But when you look at it in 3D, you recognize it's the left adrenal vein, which is an important marker when you're doing laparoscopic nephrectomies. But again, a small dot is an obvious structure in 99% of the cases. It's how you look at the information that becomes most critical. We talk about a case like this of Crohn's with thickened bowel. And yes, from the axial, I see the thickening. I'm not arguing over the diagnosis. But the extent is so much better seen on the coronal view. You also show a little bit of the vasorecta better. But if you take the same data set, all the radiation has been given. Now we're just in the post-processing phase. Now look at the MIP imaging, show you the neovascularity, or rather the prominent vascularity. The vasorecta are prominent in this patient with active Crohn's disease. And we remember MIP as a projection technique, so you don't really appreciate the bowel wall to the degree you want. And so you go to volume rendering, and now you see the areas of stricture, the areas of wall thickening, plus you also see the vessels. So we can see everything, and when you think about it, in the volume you see everything. Same information on the axials or the same data sets, but it's how we look at it. Looking at thousands of images interactively. And this idea of post-processing is something that we feel is required. We also know about protocols that thinking about how we do things is important. This patient was evaluated for a complex fracture. You know the question is going to be vascular injury. If you don't give contrast, you're not going to be able to look at it. So give the IV contrast, and now you see that the patient's superficial femoral artery is intact. And when we do the CT, we give IV, we're able to look at the vascular map at the same time. We look at the bony injury and soft tissue injury. And so we don't need to bring the patient to angiography in this case. And you can see we can target down very nicely, do bone removal, and have very nice vascular maps. So it's a very important thing to do. 
we talk about dual energy, and this lecture will not be on dual energy, but we will make the point that dual energy, because we can look at calcium and iodine differently, because we look at the kH value for each element, we're able to look very carefully and be able to define a difference in calcium and iodine. And whether you're doing two x-ray tubes like Siemens or one in GE, we have certain advantages that we're able to do besides maintaining a lowering dose and lowering volume of contrast and lowering artifact, we can take the images, in this case of a patient with a radial artery occlusion, a weak post-angioplasty, and show soft tissue, show bone, show vessel, but then take the bone away and show the occlusion very nicely. We talk about in trauma, we've written about this, the importance of uh, extravasation, uh, luminal narrowing, luminal contrast, opacification, filling defects, AV fistulas, pseudoaneurysms, all being complications of arterial injuries to either upper or lower extremities. But with the CT angio, we can visualize everything. We recognize from this article some of the artifacts, and you need to try to minimize artifacts. One thing very important in the protocol section is to make sure patients are positioned comfortably. Sometimes the patients can't raise their arms, that's fine, as long as they don't move. The key thing for me is comfortable patient who doesn't move. So this patient had a tree fell down on them uh, when they were cutting that tree. Don't cut trees is my recommendation. You can see the patient stood still with his open wound in the left uh, foot or left uh, thigh. You can see the common tibial fracture, the injury to the soft tissues, injury to bone, but you can see the vessels look good despite the fragments of bone, except for when you look carefully at the anterior tibial artery, and if you pull out the bone, you see the area of narrowing due to spasm in the patient's anterior tibial artery. So again, just a very nice visualization, uh, easy to see the process. Again, taking the bone away allows you to look at the vessels, and with dual energy, you can do this faster than ever before. Or in this example, where you see a trauma case, we see early venous filling in a patient with an AV fistula. We know also that the bone removal works particularly good in the head, so looking at the base of the skull, looking at carotids, it's particularly powerful technique to use, and you can see it very nicely here. Now, one thing I'll mention, and I've not been a big fan of, but I think it's coming along, are templates. Uh, many of our residents, fellows, like templates, and perhaps templates are good because it structures reports. Often the clinicians will like them. The biggest issue is if the reports become incredibly long, it makes it very difficult uh, to read. Now, it's interesting about protocols and templates. Uh, this was an attempt in this article to look at pancreatic cancer and create a template for reporting. Now, the important thing was they wanted to make certain if you did trials at different institutions, we'd be able to compare patients by having the same reporting style. It was interesting that as we went to make the template, you realize that if you're going to have a standardized template, you also are going to need to have a standardized protocol for acquiring the data. Unless the protocols are standardized, there's no sense in standardizing the template. So 
in standardizing the protocol, it was clear that 3D imaging was necessary if you want it to be very accurate. So in this paper, and it's a very good role model perhaps for the future, we have standard protocols. So we have standard ways of acquiring data, standard ways of post-processing data with 3D, and then standard reporting, everything together. And you have to look at this article, not just for reading about the pancreas, but think about it as a template for the future. The protocol, the scanning protocols, what you're looking for in terms of arterial involvement, and what you're looking for in terms of venous involvement, what you're looking for extra pancreas, how we stage the patient, all the information is provided. It's a comprehensive approach to looking at information. Now you could take this from a different perspective and maybe one step forward is when you're reading, should you have checklists? That's a little different than templates because checklists, we know from the airline industry and other industries, help decrease errors. We did an app on checklists, which is very, very, very uh, well received from the Apple Store. It's for free, so download it. And we're doing more of those. But you can see we have a number of questions. And then when you click an answer, for example, is there a pancreatic mass present? If so, yes. Is it, how would you describe it? Solid, cystic. And then from there, you can see some of the differential diagnosis. So when you're looking at templates, think more of checklists and checklists may become very important as we go to more computerized imaging as we talk about deep learning we're involved in the felix project where we're trying to do is teach the computer how to read the pancreas and adjacent structures we're teaching it and creating maps of information and then perhaps take that and train the computer to assist us and being more accurate in reading the studies there are a number of articles, this article by Summer this past year, actually this past summer, in AJR talks about deep learning uh, to increase the efficiency of image analysis development, talking about how this will change the role of radiology by changing how we reach a diagnosis. The automatic or automated report could improve reading efficiency, but radiologists will need to be vigilant to avoid placing too much trust in the computer and I agree, it's not going to replace us, fortunately, but it will help us. This idea about big data and artificial intelligence, another article just a few weeks ago by Topol and Ja, they actually go all out. They say it's going to change radiology, it's going to change pathology, it's going to, the typical radiologist reviews 4,000 images, and we've gone from how we interpret images to searching for needles in the haystack. Okay, I'm not looking for needles in a haystack. We're still looking at the images in a recognizable, well-defined uh, workflow pattern. But this article, the radiologist once a maestro with a chest radiograph is now often visually fatigued searching for an occult fracture in a pan scan. Well, a classic quote from non-radiologists, but I will say that we will see changes in how we do things. I think it's going to be exciting, but I think at the end of the day, it's very important that we look at how we do things. This article does make the point, or it makes me think about the fact, the comments I made about protocols. At the end of the day, no computer is going to be successful unless you have good protocols, unless the patients are scanned correctly, unless the study is done well. I think computers will help us, but it's going to be up to us to really be the maestro in designing the study and in implementing the study 
and then we'll have the rest of the band help us in reaching the right diagnosis. And with that, I'll stop there and thank you very much for your attention.